Greetings from the world headquarters of the New Criterion. This is Roger Kimball. I'm the editor and publisher of the New Criterion, and it's my pleasure to introduce for you our June 2018 issue, Hot Off the Press. We go into a state of estivation in July and August, recharging the batteries and preparing for the next season, so you will have plenty of opportunity to ponder this extra long and extra good issue. This is just a little preview of what's in store for you. Among our features is a terrific piece by Victor Davis Hanson, the great VDH, on the good populism. You've heard a lot about populism recently. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. Victor's gonna tell you about what the good populism is. We also have a brilliant essay by Michael Anton of Flight 93 fame, the Flight 93 election. I think everyone has probably heard about that essay and Michael's essay in the current issue is all about the founders what they really thought, and what their relevance is for today. We also have a terrific essay by Clive Aslett, the longtime editor of Country Life, about the future of architectural classicism. You don't want to miss that. Just a couple of other highlights from this June 2018 issue. You will find out who the world's second worst Poet is by the estimable Tony Daniels. He's going to tell you all about that. The world's second worst poet. I won't spoil it for you, but get the June issue and you will know. There are also a couple of art pieces I'd like to mention. One by our Hilton Kramer fellow, Andrew Shea, soon to be our next assistant editor at the New Criterion, and he's written a terrific piece about Soutine. You don't want to miss that. Nor do you want to miss James Finero's piece about the new classicists. It's a terrific piece. Finally, I'd like to mention uh, the review by James Pearson of Conrad Black's book about our president, Donald J. Trump. You will like that as well. Now, in June, for the last several years, we have taken an opportunity to thank those who make our work possible. It's all of you, our readers, our listeners, our supporters. And we, we, mention, we mention these people in our notes and comments. I'm not going to read that note, but I would like to read you our note about Tom Wolfe, the great essayist and novelist who died last month. The passing of Tom Wolfe last month at 88 was met as was appropriate, by an outpouring of affectionate commemoration. True, the praise, the enthusiasm, the fondness was here and there punctuated by some sniffy, though generally envious, boorishness about how Wolf, despite his zaniness, was a reactionary, merely a journalist pretending to be a novelist, or about how he perpetuated class distinctions by exacerbating status anxiety. The nation, which, like Dewar's Scotch, never varies, described him as, quote, a reactionary dandy of late capitalism, which pleased us if for no other reason than since we have not been infesting the halls of academia much these days. It has been ages since we have encountered anyone who deployed the term late capitalism straight. 
As for the epithet journalist, which is never complete when uttered by academics without at least an implied prefatory mere, we like to think that Tom Wolfe would have smiled on the observation made by the English music critic Ernest Newman that journalist is a term of abuse employed by writers who are not read about writers who are. As the author of a shelf full of bestsellers, Tom Wolfe was certainly widely read. It would be difficult to assess the quantum of pleasure his masterly exercises in social description afforded people. From exuberantly titled early works like The Candy-Colored Tangerine Flake Streamline Baby, his first collection, and The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, through magisterial works of sociological documentary like The Right Stuff, Wolf's extended description of the early space program, and on to classic books like Radical Chic, The Painted Word, and From Bauhaus to Our House, Wolf fully lived up to Horace's injunction to delight as well as instruct. The same can be said for his novels, beginning with his most famous and successful, The Bonfire of the Vanities, Wolf's homage to and emulation of Thackeray's Vanity Fair. One thing that Wolf's extravagant style at first obscured was the deep conservatism of his worldview, moral and political, as well as aesthetic. All those exclamation points and eye-popping agglomerations of adjectives, to say nothing of his Beau Brummel-like taste in haberdashery, the inevitable white suits, the spats, distracted early observers from his commitment to the canons of realism on the one hand, and, on the other, his firm endorsement of the traditional social, political, and economic order, middle-class values, in fact, that had made the United States such a conspicuous oasis of prosperity and freedom. Wolfe's chief subject in his novels, as well as his essays and documentary efforts, was the baneful effects that regularly follow upon the transformation of moral ideas into imperative fashion accessories. In one sense, fashion inhabits a fluctuating and ephemeral realm but its diktats can be tyrannical as well as peremptory. Counterpoised against the ground of traditional moral and aesthetic practice, the expostulations of fashion absolutized amount to what Wolf once called pernicious enlightenment, which is to say the fake enlightenment of what we today call political correctness. That intoxicating emotion of virtue that follows on the conviction that one is traveling in the vanguard of history. The result is often comic, but also often appalling, not to say malicious. Wolf was expert at rendering the tout ensemble. In his core, Tom Wolf was a satirist. And like other notable practitioners of that art, from juvenile through Jonathan Swift and Evelyn Waugh, his satire unfolded against a horizon of values that contrasted sharply with the things satirized and that gave the satire its bite. When Wolfe guided the vacuous pretensions of various schools of modernist art, for example, he implicitly contrasted them with the fullness of traditional artistic practice. 
At the end of the painted word, Wolf imagines, quote, the great retrospective exhibition of American art, 1945 to 1975, to be held in the future of the Museum of Modern Art or the Metropolitan Museum of Art, where the seminal figures will be not Pollock, de Kooning, and Johns, that's Jasper Johns, in case you were wondering, but the prominent critics, Clement Greenberg, Harold Rosenberg, and Leo Steinberg. Up on the walls, Wolf wrote, will be huge copy blocks, eight and a half by 11 feet each, presenting the protean passages of the period, a little fuliginous flatness here, a little action painting there, and some of that all great art is about art just beyond. Next to them will be tiny reproductions of the work those passages comment on, or rather, take flight from. In one respect, Wolf's book was upbeat, for he believed, or at least he wrote, that the subjugation of art to theory would be but a transitory phenomenon. In the years to come, he concluded, every art student will marvel at the fact that a whole generation of artists devoted their careers to getting the word and to be internalizing the word to the extraordinary task of divesting themselves of whatever there was in their imagination and technical ability that did not fit the word. They will listen to art historians say, with the sort of smile now reserved for the study of Phrygian astrology, that's how it was then. There are a few hints that Wolf was right about this. Not, not yet, in the art world as a whole, but among the fructifying fringes, those quiet purlieus where the practice of art thrives in ghettos adjacent to the snobbish, fashionable, money-soaked neighborhoods demarcating the uppercase art world. And as an aside, not part of the notes, but as an aside, I'd like to direct your attention again to James Pinero's essay in our issue this month, which talks about some of those adjacent purlieus. Now, were Tom Wolfe starting out today, we suspect that he might find the path to success more arduous. There are a few reasons for this. For one thing, effective satire depends upon a clear and generally agreed upon distance between satire and reality. As the moral and aesthetic pretensions of nihilism gobble up greater and greater precincts of cultural life, it becomes more and more difficult to distinguish reliably the one from the other. The line was already getting blurry in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s when Wolf was at his satirical apogee. Progress toward terminal fatuousness has continued apace and has made the satirist job ever more difficult. What common values, after all, can he confidently appeal to in framing his jibes? But pretensions can still be punctured. An aspiring young Tom Wolf would find plenty of fodder among academics whose preening makes them perennial targets. Intellectuals, Waugh noted, aren't used to being written about. When they aren't taken seriously and become part of the human comedy, they have a tendency to squeal like weenies over an open fire. But satire's larger purpose, ultimately the moral purpose of reform, is more difficult at a time when shared values are in a state of disarray 
and indeed dissolution. There is also the issue of truth. Satire depends upon being able to speak truth both to power and to whatever the coercions of fashion ought to be called. One of the chief, if unspoken, tenets of political correctness is that truth must be subordinated to the dictates of this season's roster of approved attitudes and sentiments. Finally, there is the related issue of reverence. Tom Wolfe's whole procedure as an essayist and as a novelist proceeded with studied irreverence toward the reigning pieties of his time. Consider his rhetoric in radical chic, his delicious but also deadly description of the fancy dinner party, though later we were instructed to call it a meeting, that the egregio maestro Leonard Bernstein and his wife threw for the Black Panthers in their 13-room penthouse on Park Avenue. Everything about that essay, from its very title on down, was calculated to assault the delicate consensus of the beautiful people who attended the gathering in order to experience a frisson of with-it self-satisfaction. The essay opens with Bernstein having a vision in which, quote, a Negro rises up from out of the curve of the grand piano and starts saying things like, the audience is curiously embarrassed. Then there's the, quote, huge black panther there in the hallway, the one shaking hands with Felicia Bernstein herself, the one with the black leather coat and the dark glasses and the absolutely unbelievable afro, fuzzy-wuzzy scale, in fact. At a moment when college students throw tantrums because some of their teachers refuse to police Halloween costumes and everything can be castigated as racist, such rhetoric is a prescription not for accolades, but for ostracism. Tom Wolfe was a literary treasure and a sly, if undeclared, cultural warrior on the side of civilization. There might be a place for him as a writer of genius. As a polemicist, alas, he is too high-octane to pass muster in our timid, querulous, and self-asphyxiating age. <laughs>